So I, I've been really, really busy the, the last few weeks, and so is my, so my wife as well. And, and so she had Friday off, and so I, did, I moved my entire week around to do all this stuff, and so I took Friday afternoon off, uh, and I went and spent it with my wife. And so I, I, go, I go, what do you want to do? And she goes, I want to go see 300. And I'm like, sweet. <laughs> That's what I would like to do too. <laughs> so it was great. So my wife is awesome. I just thought I'd tell you. Uh, <laughs> we're doing baptisms next month. And if you are interested in being baptized, you want to know more about it, they're going to do a short class after the service. You can just head out the back door. There's a classroom across the way. Uh, there, we do need you out of there for the next one, so it's going to be really, really short. So just go in there if you have any questions about it, you want to sign up to be baptized or any of that stuff. Um, welcome to Element. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have it. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes in all the communion tables throughout the room. Uh, they have uh, uh, the sermon notes inside of them, questions on the back. You have a smartphone. You can download an app. It's called Uversion. Click on Live and Uversion, unless you have a Windows phone because they don't like Windows phones. Uh, click on Live. It'll bring us up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes and verses and all that goes along with this morning's message. And why don't you stab me for reading God's Word, and we'll get started. This is Romans 3.23, and it says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we as a people would be those who understand our state that you have come and rescued us out of. Uh, That we would be a humble people that would live lives that always lift you up because you have been so unimaginably good to us. We ask that our lives would live in response to the great blessedness that you have first given us. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, This is week seven. Uh, You're probably thinking we are never going to make it out of the Beatitudes. But we will. I promise. It is coming. There's just so much in the Beatitudes that we've got to spend a lot of time with them. Uh, I'm Hopefully I'm doing this in the way that I don't confuse you or lose you. And hopefully by the end of the Beatitudes you'll be like, oh man, this makes so much more sense now. Uh, when I was actually writing this message, uh, we were putting on a, a bathroom extension on the back of our house. And so I had a drywall guy at my house. I had dust everywhere. My wife's clothes were all over the house. My wife was not happy. So we're going to see how this message translates after all that and right in the middle of that. Ah, then you're all, it just comes at you like that. Now, uh, the Beatitudes are not talking about eight different types of people groups. It's talking about eight characteristics of one type of people. Jesus is describing those who have entered in or live in the kingdom of God. This is why he starts the Sermon on the Mount with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Jesus teaches us being born again is a way of entering or living in this kingdom. Uh, Jesus talks to a guy named Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 3, he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again to see the kingdom. Then in verse 5 of John chapter 3, Jesus says you must be born again to enter the kingdom. And so in Jesus' mind, it's all about this living in, entering in this kingdom. And to be people in God's kingdom, it means that we are citizens with all the rights and privileges of people who live in that kingdom. It means that we belong to God. You are born again. Now, a lot of times people say, well, how do I know if I'm born again? Well, that's kind of what the Beatitudes are about. They are characteristics of, not qualifications for, those who are going to live in the kingdom of God. It's really clear. It's really helpful. It cuts through all the garbage that's out there. And so, uh, two weeks ago, we looked at how the first three, first three Beatitudes all went together, hand in hand with each other, and they're kind of negative qualifications, right? You got poor in spirit. Uh, it's those who mourn, 
the meek. It's like, man, those are really just kind of depressing things. And we talked about this. Some of you uh, were here and fell asleep. Uh, some of you weren't here, so we're just going to kind of cover these really quickly as review. Uh, this is part two of the fourth beatitude, which is, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Uh, last week we looked at this from a heart cry issue. Today I'm going to look at this with you from a theological standpoint. You're going to learn a lot, hopefully, this morning as you walk out these doors. And I really almost think that I should have done next week, or, or this week, last week, and last week, this week, because it would have made a little more sense, but, you know, I'm just dumb like that. So whatever, we're going to figure this out. When we're done uh, with the eight Beatitudes, we're going to come back and just step through them all again, so they all make sense in line with each other. But again, in order to understand where we're at today, you've got to understand those first three first. And the first Beatitude that Jesus says is we cannot be people who actually live in the kingdom of God, know that blessedness that he talks about of the kingdom, unless we first understand that we are poor in spirit. That we are poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit means that we understand that our problems and our lives are all beyond us. To be poor in spirit means that we understand that we are bankrupt whether we realize it or not. And we do not have the resources of which to make good our debt. Now, the way the average American grows up today is you're a kid and you go to, you go to you know, elementary school and junior high and high school and then into college. And all the way through that, you're taught by all of your teachers that if we just get together and we hold hands and we sing Kumbaya and we hug each other, then everything's just going to be okay. Right? Not, not actually looking at a lot of these teachers' lives are totally jacked up to begin with, but if we just hold hands, we'll all, all be good. And as time goes on, you, you get out of college and all of a sudden you realize life is hard. Life is horrible. All of our illusions get shattered. We begin to find that life is completely unmanageable. We find that no matter how hard we try, we get into all kinds of painful situations that are very discouraging. We begin to see how capable human beings are of rage and jealousy and selfishness and fear. And worst of all, we see how capable we are of those exact same things. And at some point, most of us get delusioned. I mean, just listen to any country music song. That's all that it's about, you know. And that's, that's what happens to all of us, because we really live in a country music type of world. And don't take this the wrong way, but statistically speaking, this eye-opening usually happens in women about 10 years before it happens to men. Now, they, the statisticians, they don't know why this is. I think I do, because I'm always right. Okay, so I think it's because women are told by every advertisement today, from USA to Cosmo to Vogue, that they can take control of their social life, and they can take control of their body, and they can take control of their sex life. But in the end, they realize they're not in control, and all they are is out of a whole lot of money. And so they get really discouraged. Guys go through this, too. It's just a little bit later. They end up buying, like, sports cars, and they watch a commercial, and they're like, oh, I'll buy some Axe body spray. That'll fix it. That'll make me sexy. Oh, that doesn't work. I'll buy some Viagra. We all know what that's for, so I don't need to explain it, okay? And, and when nothing works, we're like, I'll just go into therapy. Yeah, I'll talk to a therapist. They will fix it. They'll make me better. I'll pull myself up my bootstraps. I will get the willpower to fix everything. And we just become more self-absorbed than ever, ever. We must realize that we are the problem in the first place. Hopefully, at some point, we must get to the place in our lives where we say our lives and our problems are totally beyond us. That's what it means to understand to be poor in spirit. That is the first announcement Jesus makes. And then the second characteristic is that we mourn. It means that we don't just say, I have these problems, but we identify that our problems are not just philosophical or sociological or psychological, but they're also spiritual. Where we come and we say, you know what, I have sinned. My problem is actually sin. This is like G.K. Chesterton, a great writer of the 20th century, said the problem with the universe is me. It is me. It means you stop blaming everybody else, you stop blaming society, and you stop blaming your genes, and you stop blaming your parents, and you begin to say, you know, even though I think I'm fairly moral, I realize that I'm not, because I live as king and God of myself. 
We must come to the place where we realize that we owe Jesus everything. Sin is that claim in our lives that we have to be in charge of our own life. We have to be the center of our own life. We want to actualize our own potential. But salvation is centered in knowing God and his love, and he becomes the center of our lives. Until we admit that our problems are not just beyond us, but our problem is sin, and it's in us, and it's what we do, we will never live life in the kingdom as God really intends us to live. Which goes to the third thing where we talked about meekness. Because once you realize that your problems are just way beyond you and you see your problems are your own selfishness and your own sin, we can start to get despair and we can get very angry. Or what we can do is go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you. I need your solution and your provision because I don't have any on my own. And that's kind of where we stopped two weeks ago. And I'm surprised I didn't get more hate mail. Because you just like, when I do this and people are like, that was really depressing. You left me in a really down spot. I think it's positive in a roundabout way, but it is kind of negative. I mean, in order to live in the blessedness of the kingdom of God, you've got to turn from your self-sufficiency. We've got to run away from our sin and our selfishness and understand that it is Jesus who lays his righteousness upon us. I mean, the, the answer to all this really comes in the fourth beatitude, and I think it's where it is for a reason. Because it's the heart of the scriptures. It's the heart of the gospel. The keystone of all these Beatitudes is Matthew 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Now, it doesn't say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after blessedness. Well, I've got to find this thing called blessedness. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after something besides blessedness. Because it seems like a truth that whatever you try to try and you know, seek after and get, you never really get that thing. Like if you try to be happy, if that's the goal of your life, you're never going to be happy. Anything we center our life on other than the kingdom and Jesus Christ and his righteousness, we will destroy or it will destroy us. It is not blessed are those who hunger and thirst after blessedness, but blessed are those who hunger and thirst after something more than blessedness, and that is righteousness. There's an old saying. It says, you know, aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in, aim at earth, and you get neither. People in chemistry call these things byproducts. You don't get things by finding them directly. Byproducts can be good or bad. It's like today they're finding when they drill for certain ores, some of the stuff that comes out of the ground as they're looking for that ore is actually really good for contaminant cleanup. That's a byproduct. If you have an animal like a dog or a cat or a rabbit or a bird or whatever, most of the stuff that makes up their food are considered byproducts. They're stuff that we won't eat, but yet it has a lot of nutrients for them, so they throw it in there. You know, a country music, it is the byproduct of all the bad stuff that happens in people's lives. Oh, you know it's true. That's why it hurts so bad when I say it, you know. I, rap music, rap music. I mean, it, was, it started off as, the, as this angst and the cry of these, of these people who felt like they were being held down all the time. And so it started coming out in this type of music. Gospel music was the same way. This entire oppressed group of people, and they started to sing these songs of lament. It's where gospel comes out of. Uh, you know, even when you drive down the road, asphalt, asphalt is considered a byproduct. And so when you come to the scriptures, the Bible says the way we know our heart is beginning to change. So we start to hunger and thirst after righteousness. You know, it's a byproduct of first following Jesus. It's, it's not the first beatitude, it's the fourth, because we realize we're poor in spirit. We mourn. We're humble because of what Jesus has done. And then we start to hunger and thirst for this righteousness because it has been placed upon us. And what is righteousness? I mean, at the heart of the gospel is admitting that we do not have a righteousness of our own. But God alone gives us his righteousness, an outside righteousness, not of our own making. If a lot of people who have surrendered their lives to Christ still don't even really understand this. I had a lady come up to me after first service, and she goes, I paid a therapist last week a bunch of money to tell me what you just said from the scriptures, and it made much more sense when you said it. And I go, there you go. Offering boxes on the side wall in the bed. 
part of living in the kingdom is understanding that we don't have a righteousness that is our own. And so we must begin to realize that because when we do, it keeps us a humble people. We have a running thing in staff meeting about cliches and how we're not supposed to, you know, I can, I'm never supposed to say, let me unpack this, but that's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to unpack this for you. We're not going to look at a lot of verses. What I want to do is theologically walk through what this fourth beatitude really means. And first off, it starts off, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. And in America, we don't really understand what it means to truly be hungry. I'm not saying nobody in America is hungry. By and large, America is rolling in a whole lot of social programs, and we've got a whole lot of restaurants. If you've actually ever been hungry, if you've ever gotten to a place you know, where you're starting to starve, you know the desire for food and drink eventually grows until anything tastes good. If you have ever said, I don't want that because I don't like the taste, you've never actually really been hungry. Jesus says those in the kingdom of God are people who experience a very deep drive for righteousness. We long for God's righteousness. It's hungering and thirsting, desperation, wrestling for righteousness. Now, all people in one sense or another have a struggle for righteousness, whatever cause they believe in. But people who live in the kingdom of God have something completely different. Now, the word righteousness is the word that means to be approved in its roots. And so righteousness needs Righteousness means rightness. It means uh, to be right with somebody, to be approved by somebody, to be received, to be accepted. I'll give you some examples. So what do these situations have in common? Uh, you're going in for a big job interview, and you're sitting across people, and you're giving it your all. You're going out on a blind date for the first time, and you're, and you're really trying to impress that person. Uh, you're going in for an interview to maybe get into a degree program of some sort. What do all those have in common besides being totally nerve-wracking? What do they have in common? What you're doing is you're waiting for a verdict. Will you be approved? Will you be received? Will you be acceptable? You are waiting for rightness. Will the other person on the side of the table say, that's the best performance I've ever seen? Maybe that's in regard to the blind date. I don't know. It would be kind of funny if it was. But, you know, or, or you've got the job, or I'll go without with you again. If the verdict comes in approving us, there is fulfillment. If the verdict rejects us, we feel like our lives are falling apart. Psychologists tell us that every one of us struggled for a sense of being acceptable in somebody else's eyes. And everybody has different standards, everybody has different authorities, but every one of us, if you want to be accepted by somebody, have to live up to whatever standards those people have. We all struggle for rightness, we all struggle to be acceptable. We cannot take rejection from the things and the people and the authorities that are most important to us. Psychologists say, we build our self-image on something, we get our identity from something. Thing, which is plagiarism because Jesus just said that. You know, in the Bible it says we all struggle for righteousness. It's the same thing. The question is, you know, what makes you feel good about yourself? What makes you feel acceptable? The Bible says we all struggle for righteousness. We all, in a sense, hunger and thirst for righteousness. But before we come to Christ, there's really only two types of people in the world. One, people who temporarily feel better because they've met somebody else's rightness in their eyes. And then something eventually comes along to crush that, and you've got to do it all over again. And secondly, is those who enter the kingdom of God and get to a place where they begin to hunger and thirst for His righteousness. And that means a lot of times we must admit the real problem and the real reason that we're always so anxious and have all these nagging doubts and thoughts in the middle of our heart is we know that in ourselves we are not acceptable to God. We are not. To know the blessings of the kingdom, we have to admit we are not righteous before God on our own because we are people who sin against each other. We have sin in ourselves. This is what Jesus came and died for. But we sin against each other all the time. That means God doesn't like sin. God is displeased with sin and it makes him angry. And that means sometimes God can actually be angry with us. And I know in America, people are like, that's not how you talk about God in church in America. You don't talk about an angry God. That's like a guilt trip. That's old-fashioned. God's a God of love. Okay, God gets angry because he is a God of love. Anybody in here ever loved, don't have to raise your hands, but anybody ever loved an addict? 
I mean, just it'd be really strange in America if you have not met or known somebody who was an addict of some sort. I mean, you ever see that? And then when you when you love that person and you see a lie or an evil or something in them destroying them, you get angry. You see them and you want to shake them. You want to say, do you see what this is doing to you? Every day I see you, you are less of yourself. And you get angry because you love them. E.H. Gippert once wrote, The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the liar, the drunkard, and the traitor. See, the opposite of love is not anger. Real love entails anger. The opposite of love is indifference. I think indifference is the ultimate form of hate because you're just like, fine, I don't really care about you anymore. I'm just indifferent towards you. If you love somebody, you get angry at the evil and the liar and the traitor that's in them. And if we as human beings can feel that, how much more does God feel it who is morally perfect when he looks at us and he sees the liar and the traitor and the sin that's in us? To hunger and thirst after righteousness means that we see God as angry at sin. Sin has to be dealt with. And you cannot live, as Jesus says, the blessedness of the kingdom until we begin to understand that. Secondly, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Righteousness. It's clear from that verse that the righteousness we're hungering and thirsting after is something we don't have on our own. It's like you don't hunger and thirst after something that's in your fridge at home. You know, because if you have it, you eat it. And if you don't, you're just weird, okay, because it's there and you're going to go eat the dumb thing. You get hungry and thirsty after food that you don't have. It's an outside thing. And righteousness is an outside righteousness. And I'm not trying to lose you or confuse you here, but in the Greek, instead of using what's called a genitive uh, form, there's what's called an accusative form being used here. And I'll explain that so you understand. A genitive case is used when you use the word like of in a sentence. I want a piece of Bread. That's using bread in a genitive case. You're not saying I want all the bread. I want some bread, like a couple pieces of the bread. And I want a piece of cake. You don't want the whole cake. You just want like a piece or two of the cake. When I say I want some cookies, I mean I want all the cookies. <laughs> just in case you were wondering about that. Now, now ordinarily, people would say I hunger and thirst after a genitive form of righteousness. I hunger and thirst after some righteousness. Yet the accusative case is used here, which means Jesus is saying that those in the kingdom of God are not looking for some righteousness. They are looking for righteousness itself, a perfect righteousness, a full righteousness. And this is where Tim Keller starts to talk about the difference between a moralist and a Christian. He says a moralist usually lives a much better looking life than most Christians. They're very moral, very upright, very religious. But in the end, that makes them very smug. They're very self-righteous. They're not approachable. If you go to them with a the problem, they look at you and they say, you know what, we'll just pull yourself out of it. You can do better than hint like I have. And nobody wants to talk to them because everybody feels judged when you talk to them or when you're around them. Now, a Christian on the other side, they, has a, they have a high view of truth. They love beauty, but will not excuse sin in themselves or other people. They have a tremendous passion for holiness and godliness, and yet they are completely approachable because they live also the third beatitude, which is humbleness, which is meekness. There's a humility and a peace about them. You should find it easy to talk to someone who lives in the kingdom of God because they know that their problems have been just like your problems. They don't put you down. I think that's one of the tests of really good living in Christianity. Are you approachable? How approachable are you? Do people want to talk to you, or they just write you off because they, they think you're just a moralist? What does that look like in your life? I mean, the difference between a Christian and a moralist, uh, Tim Keller says, moralists and Christians both repent for their sins, but a Christian also repents of his righteousness. See, a moralist will say, well, I made a sin or messed up, but look at all the good I'm doing. I'm working really hard. I got a job. I'm taking my family. I went to church. I help my church. I do all these things there. Where a Christian looks at it and a Christian says, I say the only way that God has ever received me is when I completely rely upon what Jesus has done and nothing on what I have done. And those are two totally separate things. 
See, John Stott once wrote, For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, putting ourselves in God's place, trying to be in charge of our own life. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. And that is Christianity in one sense. Jesus came and on the cross died and paid and did everything necessary. Our record is bad. Our record is wrong. Our record earns nothing. But he comes. He does everything on our behalf. He substitutes himself, his record, his righteousness, his life, his death on the cross. And the moment we trust him and all of that turn our lives over to Jesus, all of his becomes ours. And at that moment, we receive God's verdict. We receive God's rightness. We become right with him. And God says, that is my beloved child. With them, I am totally and thoroughly pleased. And that changes everything. Which goes to the third thing. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. They will be satisfied. That is soul satisfaction. See, you have to be filled with that righteousness. This is what we talk about. We must understand what that means. And part of what that is, is God's verdict and only God's verdict matters. Other people may like you or dislike you. Other people may approve of you or disapprove of you. But whose verdict counts? God's and only his counts. You are right with him. This is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Timothy Keller says that's the only verdict that will last and it will last longer than the stars. See, you could say if you go to an interview or a blind date and you're kind of rejected in, in those things. You can say, you know what, it doesn't matter. I'm going to rule and reign with him forever and ever. It doesn't mean you don't do your best in an interview or do your best at a job or do your best at a blind date unless you don't like him. You know, it's because you know, we, we do these things as if we're living for Jesus and all that we do. But understanding that we have his righteousness, it changes everything. Because if and when you are successful, you're not puffed up. If a date goes really bad, you're not defeated. Again, it's why I say in the, in the kingdom of God, country music just ceases to exist. When you fail an interview or something like that, you know, you might be cast down. You might feel a little bit defeated, but not nearly as low as you were before because that is no longer your righteousness. What it means is that bragging is also done. Being puffed up is done because we know who we are in ourselves, but we know who we are in Jesus Christ. That's what it means. Years ago, a lady named Becky, Becky Pippert, she wrote a book called Hope Has Its Reasons. And Becky Pippert is a Christian speaker, does a lot of seminars and things like that. And so in this book, she writes about how after she was done with one of these seminars, a, a young lady came up and started talking to her. And the woman said she was recently married. She was a member of a very, very, very conservative evangelical church. And she married a man who was also part of that church. They, they ended up becoming considered leaders in that church. And then about six months before they were supposed to get married, they found out that she was pregnant. Now, what's that going to mean to people in this church. They're going to have to show that conservative, very, very, very conservative church that they were practicing something different than they were actually preaching. They realized there was going to be this huge scandal. People are going to judge them. It's going to cause all kinds of problems. So they decided to have an abortion instead. Okay? Now, no matter your thoughts on abortion or where you stand on it, I think we can all agree that that's wrong. Okay? They're about to get married. They wanted children. They expected to have them. There's no reason you know, to get rid of a child simply because you're afraid of what people are going to think. And so she says she walks down the aisle on her wedding day, and everybody's looking at her like she is just the beaming bride. She says to Becky Pippert, the whole time I'm walking down, I'm thinking in my heart was, you murderer, you murderer. She says all the way down the aisle, that's what she kept saying. She's like, you're so worried about showing these people who you truly were. You're so afraid of being exposed that you would murder that life just so you wouldn't look bad. I know what you are, and God knows what you are. She told Becky Pippert, I have confessed this thing a thousand times. 
over and over and over. He says, I'm obsessed with it. I'm depressed. It's running me into the ground. Emotionally, I'm a wreck. I don't know what to do. How could God possibly forgive me? And Becky Pippert, I think she's just genius in this. She says, Jesus Christ had to die for all of our sins, sins of the religious and the non-religious, sins of the Nazis and the victims, sins of the moral types and the immoral types. We are all responsible for the death of the only innocent man who ever lived. The sin that caused you to destroy that life was pride, pride. And it was pride that destroyed Jesus' life 2,000 years ago. It's like one of my favorite quotes by Martin Luther. He says, we all carry about in our pockets his very nails. We should put that on a T-shirt. That'd be good. I'll take credit. Okay. Um, so Becky Pippert says, says, this girl says, you were already a murderer before this happened, and it was totally paid for long ago. So she says, who is Becky Pippert? And she goes, she goes, wait a minute. I've always in my head, you know, had this Christian ideal that I was a sinner. My sins are responsible for the death of Jesus, and so I believe in Jesus. She goes, but now I really see it. I came and told you that I did the worst thing imaginable, and you just told me I did something worse than that. She goes, I killed God's son. And if he can forgive me for that, he can forgive me for this as well. Now, why is she so depressed? Because for the longest time, she thought she was a Christian because she thought Christianity was based all upon her own righteousness. You know, she intellectually believed Jesus died for my sin. She was relying on her niceness, though, for her salvation. She couldn't actually understand forgiveness. I mean, she, she was saying, I'm sure God will accept me because I work really hard in my church. I'm such a good person. I'm really nice. I'm clean. I'm, I'm very moral. That was her righteousness. That's what it was. And when she did this, she's always relying on her own rightness. And so she could never understand true forgiveness. It's not that she didn't have it. She didn't understand it. And, of course, she couldn't forgive herself. You know, because all that time, she's still relying on her own righteousness. And the day she understood what Jesus had really done, what it means to live in the kingdom of God, to hunger and thirst after Christ's righteousness, she starts to become free. See, that is the only hope that anybody has ever, ever had. And this is the idea that you and I can both be free as well. Jesus says, you know, surrender yourself to me. Completely rely on my righteousness and your record, not anything else that you've ever done. And so we do. That's surrendering our lives to Christ. Jesus, I trust you for all things. I surrender to you in everything. And the moment we do that, Jesus says, you're filled. And you begin to live in that kingdom of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. We understand the satisfaction that Jesus has brought to our souls. Because we don't have a righteousness of our own. Now, anybody ever see uh, the, the play or the movie Les Mis? Obviously not. <laughs> like, I hated that. There's too much singing in it. Yeah. Uh, I watch the movie because I don't like singing, so I hear the movie version's a little bit different than Liam Neeson, but, you know, he was Aslan, so I'm cool with that. So uh, I'm going to ruin this for you if you haven't seen it. At the end of the movie, uh, like, really, everybody dies, okay? There you go. You're welcome. Done. So maybe go set, but everybody really kind of dies. Now, at the, end of the, at the end of the play or, or the movie, you have this cop. His name is Javert. That's the best French I got, so that's all I got, okay? Uh, he's been chasing this criminal his entire life. And then what happens, uh, and I think he's wrongly chasing this criminal his entire life. Anyway, at the end of the, of the play or the movie, what happens is he is actually given mercy by this criminal he's been chasing. And what he realizes is, is if he accepts this mercy from Jean Valjean, this guy that he has been chasing, if he accepts that mercy, he's going to lose control of his life. He's going to lose control of all of his own rightness because he has based his entire life on his own rightness. And in the end, what he does is he allows himself just to die. Because he'd rather die than surrender to someone else. And that's a lot of reasons many people don't want to follow Jesus or receive his grace. Because what happens is we lose control of our lives. 
That's what happens. I mean, if, if you say, I can handle it, I can be good, I can do it better, I can clean up my own life, you've never gotten to the point where you understand God's righteousness laid upon you. You're trying to stay in control of your own life. Because when you trust Jesus and his grace, you've got to give up everything in your life. And if you don't, you will never feel accepted when people say, oh, hey, that was a great addition. Uh, if you're a woman, most of the time you won't accept it when your husband tells you how beautiful he thinks that you are. You'll think, oh, no, no, I'm not. You'll never really believe it when someone says, I want to go out on a second date. You'll think, well, why would you? you? I mean, you'll never feel accepted because underneath you're always worrying. If they actually saw the person that I was, no one would want to have anything to do with me. You can never feel accepted until you know you were accepted at your worst. And on the cross, God tells you, I have seen you at your worst. I accept you. I receive you. Put your faith in me is the only thing that matters. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. His rightness laid upon us. I mean, that is the only place that we can go that gives us a new start. This is the idea that all life dead ends at the cross, and that's where all life truly begins, is at the cross. His rightness laid upon us because we are people who are in desperate straits. I mean, you, you, may, you may have spent a lot of your life believing in Jesus and, oh, Jesus died for my sin and stuff, but you won't actually live in the blessedness and the goodness and the wonder of God's kingdom until you understand his rightness laid upon you and given to you because that makes us completely humble people. It makes us stop being so religious. It makes us people who live the gospel in the kingdom of God as Jesus intends. This is why we actually talk about communion every single week at Element. You take that cracker and you break it like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and I to give us his rightness. We become a righteous people because of what he has done. The band's going to come up. And as they do, we invite you to sing a couple songs with them to take communion. And there's going to be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer, like maybe you have spent much of your life relying on your own rightness. And every time something happens where you're not accepted, you just totally get defeated. You know, you should probably pray with them and talk to them about that because the idea is that it's not our own righteousness. It's not our rightness. God gives it to us because there's no way we would ever live a sinful life. Jesus did, and he lays that life upon us. He gives it to us. And that makes us different because we live as a people who are grateful and humble knowing the grace that he provides. Um, there's offering boxes inside the wall in the back and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. It's a response. Uh, there's food in the back. At least there was the last time I checked. Hopefully people from second service didn't decide to like, come in like a bunch of angry locusts and eat it all. And you can grab something to eat. But as we do, we give you that, you know, put food back there for, it's for a purpose. You know, it's so that you would maybe stick around and talk to some other people. Maybe invite somebody out to lunch today or, or go to dinner this week or sign up for a gospel community. And sit down with some other people and, and ask some really hard questions like, do people perceive you as a moralist or as a Christian? How approachable are you by people? I mean, do they, do they just write you off or do they really see you living that kingdom of God life? I mean, not, again, that, that that makes you acceptable before God because God's not rightness is laid upon you, but how are we then living out that kingdom? How are we showing who he truly is? How do his children show the greatness and goodness of a God who is better than we could ever imagine? 
who has laid his rightness upon us as a free gift. That should always keep us humble. Always. Because our God is unimaginably good. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that we would be a people who understand, first off, that our lives and the stuff around us is so far beyond us that we can we cannot take care of it. And so we realize that we're poor in spirit. Then we begin to mourn because we realize that we have hurt others just as others have hurt us. And we mourn in the midst of that. And then we realize that you have come to save us and that makes us a meek and a humble people because we trust you in all things. And then we understand that your righteousness has been laid upon us, that are standing before you is simply because of you. And what Jesus has done and so we ask that you would begin to empty us of all of our self-rightness all of our arrogance all of our own pride and fill us with the understanding of our great and good God who has come to rescue and redeem That you give us Jesus' rightness before you. And you take away all of our sin. All of the ways that we constantly run away from you. And you place upon us your mercy and your grace. I ask that you would strengthen our hearts to the point where we could actually believe that. And live in that. Where we understand that it's not even about how well we confess or the prayers that we say. This is about understanding the faith that is placed in your Son as He gives His righteousness to us. Empty us, fill us with you. Burn away our desires for things that are not of you. So we live lives as your children that fully reflect the goodness and grace of our great Father who has saved us. We ask these things in your son's good name. Amen.